Hello, and welcome back to Stalking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend Chabruta and Gordon. Our DAP today, Masech Gitin, DAP Mem Pete 40. Well, our Gemara has an interesting set of cases where an owner does something to a slave and then it impacts the slave's status. Uh, I want to jump around a bit because I actually found all of these cases to be interesting and I wasn't quite sure which case to focus on. Uh, the first case actually begins on the bottom of Lamed Tet. Uh, which says, I'm a Rabbi Zera, I'm a Rav Hanina, I'm a Rav Ashi, I'm a Rabbi. So Rabbi Zera said in the name of Rabbi Hanina, said in the name of Rabbi Ashi, said in the name of Rabbi. So let's say a slave marries a free woman. Now we know that normally a Canaanite slave, right? Remember, so this is a non-Jewish slave who becomes a slave in a Jewish household and therefore has to adopt many Jewish customs in a way they sort of like you know, they become part of the household uh, and he wants to marry a, a free woman. Right. Uh, so and he does this and he goes ahead and marries a free woman in front of his owner. He basically becomes free because if he had not been free, he wouldn't have been allowed uh, to marry uh, this woman because the only way you, it's not that by marrying this woman, you become free. It's, you know, but the fact that he wasn't told by his, by his owner, oh, you can't get married, means he must have been free. Um, and Amr uh, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan says to Rabbi Zera, have you, uh, have you, uh, you know, sort of a Mesorah from Rabbi, a tradition from Rabbi of so great. I learned from the following, if a mass, if an owner writes a document of, you know, engagement of betrothal to his slave woman, right? And basically gives it to her. So in other words, the owner decides he wants to marry his his slave woman. Rabbi Meir says that she's married and the rabbis say she is not. So in other words, what the rabbis are basically saying is that if the owner, right, treats his slave woman as a free woman, it doesn't prove that she, that he actually freed her. Right. Uh, in fact, you know, it may mean that he, uh, you know, that he was, I don't know, trying to do something in his interest, not in her interest. And therefore, according to the Chachamim, it's they're not Mikudeshit. It's not it, it, she's there's no in there because we don't know that she was actually freed. This seems to contradict what Rebbe said before the statement we had of Rebbe that is that a slave who was w- w- uh, weds a free woman in front of his owner must have been freed. So the Gemara answers, So this is how we resolve the, the Rebbe's case. That Rebbe's case has to be about what Rabbi Bar Rashila said, right? And they're going to give a parallel case. A case where an owner puts tefillin on him. So again, one of the things we know is that slaves were patur uh, from mitzvah grama, right? They don't have to do uh, time-bound uh, mitzvot. Um, but let's say that you have that the owner actually allows or he puts the fill on. And that means he's he's acting like a free person. So what we'd explain also. So really what Rebbe's case is, is that the 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 owner actually arranged for this marriage um, to take place. So, again, really what these cases are talking about, and they're going to go through and explain them a little bit more is what it seems to be and what the Gemara builds out here is that there are cases where the owner does something to the 
slave, which signifies that he must have freed the slave, either that he arranges for them to get married or he puts a fillin on the slave. And that assumes, therefore, that what? That the slave must have been uh, must have been freed. OK, then they have another case of, you know, apostles. So they explored this for a while. They explored this this case um, of the tefillin, um, and and they talk about this. But then they come to another interesting, uh, you know, an, an interesting case uh, that they say does not have a good solution to. He adds a Rabdimi, I'm a Rabbi Yochanan. So Rabdimi came uh, to Babel and he said in the Rabbi Yochanan. So Rabdimi would often travel back and forth. And this was a way that information would get shared sometime between Israel and uh, Babel. So he quotes Rabbi Yochanan to the, ba- you know, who's a, is, you know, an Israel based Amora to the Babylonian Amoras. Somebody says at the time of his death, right? My heirs shouldn't enslave her, right? My slave woman after my death. We force the heirs because that they have to emancipate her. And again, they're going to go through this type of discussion. Why should this be the case? They have a different version of Rabbi Yochanan. So again, so the first cases we have are where the owner does something to the slave that is an act, allows them to act in a way that only free people can act. The second case we have here is sort of a deathbed, you know, where the owner says, like, I don't want this person to remain enslaved. And therefore, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I'd like him to be freed. And what do we have to do about the children uh, that we sort of tell them that they, they the, the children basically have to free him. Um, and then we have a fourth, uh, you know, we have a fourth case here. Uh, sorry. So. Part of what they say about this case is, okay, they have another one that says, Amar Meymar. So this is the fourth case. The fourth case is somebody declares his slave ownerless. And that slave actually has no takana. That slave has no remedy to marry. In other words, he can't marry a Jew because he didn't never got his get for And he can't marry a slave because he's, not controlled by his, right? He's not owned by his, his owner anymore because he was declared ownerless, right? So my Tama, what's the reason? Gufe lo kanile. The slave's person is no longer owned by the owner. Isura kuteika gabe. Only the, the, the prohibitory control of the slave is with the owner, right? In other words, this slave can't marry a Jew because he's still considered to be the master's slave, the owner's slave. So he's sort of, the, the owner still owns a piece of him. But he also can't transfer this prohibitory control to the slave because uh, this, because the, because the, he can't be emancipated anymore because the, uh, because the owner made him ownerless. And so therefore he can't pass it on to him. So we have, and so the Gemara basically says that in this particular case, there's no remedy for him. He actually is sort of, uh, he basically becomes stuck in a certain way. Uh, and they they go and they discuss this a little bit more, but that's really what, what they come to the conclusion with. Uh, what I think all of these things have in common is, is that sort of this idea that the owner makes a deck. And I think it really shows really in a way, like how, what slavery is, right? Like in a way that this, the owner, either by or by a statement, you know, really can control sort of what the the status of the slave actually becomes. And in some cases, 
right? And these are all cases where like the intention is maybe there. It's not completely clear, you know, that it was done in the traditional way that the Getchi core was given. And so either we force that to happen or we assume it was happened. And in the last case, which is actually a very sad case, the ownerless slave, there's actually, you know, that person remains in limbo and the Gemara's, you know, basic, uh, you know, you know, basically decides, you know, they basically stay in limbo. How do they eventually, uh, you know, you know, it, it's very difficult to to figure out what to do with it. Uh, I, I know you're going to finish it, but there's, you know, this last case here uh, of Ravina, which is very interesting, where they cite this case where essentially there was a group of Jewish owned, you know, Canaanite slaves who they gave to, I, you know, to Avim to idolaters, and they die, and then basically those slaves come to Ravina and say, okay, but now we want to marry a Jew, and so he says you need to go to the children to, you know, get your get your horror basically to be freed so you can, and essentially what we see that Ravina comes and does in the end is he basically comes up for a solution with them because they're basically like the ownerless slave. Um, and so I thought the end story was super interesting because this wasn't a theoretical case. Like none of these cases are theoretical. Often we have the Gemara play around with things, right? Like what if someone does this? Does it mean this? What's the halakhic implication? Clear from this staff that these actually were things that probably happened. The deathbed confession where, you know, someone says, I want my slave who was so good to me to be freed. The, the, the slave who maybe was left ownerless, maybe the, the owner was angry at them or something like this. And here we have Ravina who comes and he basically is like, no, we're going to have to make a solution because we can't have it be that these people are sort of like left in limbo uh, for the rest of their life. But I'm still, I don't know, there's a piece of me that's still shocked to see sort of like that slavery really persisted in the times of the Amorayim. Um, I think that's because we don't have enough non-Talmudic literature about the Amorayim before us. Right, meaning I think that this is something that it was known, perhaps outside of the Gemara, in in the ancient world. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying about that. Yes, that's that's probably true, but I I don't know. It just, it, you know, there's so many areas of Allah that they're already not doing by then, and like the fact that the slave is one of the things that was persistent is super interesting to me. So the part that's interesting about it to me is that there has to have been enough wealth amongst the Amorayim, these particular Amorayim who are, you know, nameless and sometimes named having slaves, because if you don't have enough money to have slaves, you don't have slaves, right? So, you know, so often, certainly amongst the Tanayim, it was a different era in Eretz with persecutions, and we hear all about, you know, the wealth discrepancies amongst those who are certain Rabbeim, we understand to be, to have been very poor, some to have been quite wealthy, here, I don't know, maybe it's the upper middle class, you know, like it has to, they have to have a certain level of, of comfort to be able to, I want to keep, I keep wanting to use the word employ, but it's not right. Like they, to own slaves. Yeah. I guess that's also really, really interesting to think about. Like how common was this? Was this only like the 1%, you know, was it 50% of people? Like how many people really, you know, uh, really own slaves like that. I that I right. don't have a good sense of. Are Somebody we are we getting a dissertation all... on this? Who knows? Are we getting all of the cases, or are we just getting a handful? And are they representative for you know as as much as theory? You know, I understand they're they're practical because they were real, but is it 
representative for many, many other people? Or is it really just representative, you know, for the sake of determining the halacha from a real life case? I'm going to go on. I'm at the bottom of Ahmed Aleph and another real life case, right? How did the betray? Meaning it seems to me that indeed this is a real life person, a real life slave who was who was owned by two owners. One of them gets up and frees his half of the slave. So what happens? The second guy says, the rabbis, you know, the, of the court, let's say, they're going to hear that this slave is half emancipated, and they're going to insist that the one who did not free him is going to have to give him up, right? Meaning he's half half a slave is really a complicated matter. And the next stuff is going to tell us about how, you know, how indeed a court will force a master to free a slave if he's already half emancipated, meaning the Gemara here is alluding to what's going to come on the next stuff. So what does he do instead? <laughs> it's really kind of, you're Danny, you want to talk about the realia here, right? This half owner who has not freed his slave goes and gives his ownership of the slave to his son, who is a minor, because the court cannot get the minor son to emancipate the slave because he only has ownership of him to begin with by virtue of the transfer of ownership by the father, right? Meaning he's a katan. He, he's not considered able to own in the same way. We've seen this before. We did talk about ownership of a slave by a katan. So it seems particularly, I don't know what, insidious, something that this guy, rather than allow himself to free the slave that the partial owner, that the other part already freed, he's like going out of his way to make sure that the half of this guy that is not freed remains a slave. Shalcha Rav Yosef the Rava Lakame Rav Papa. So Rav Yosef, the son of Rava, sent to Rav Papa this question, meaning what are they supposed to do? Shalachle. So he answers back, Kasher Asa Ken Yaselo Gmulo Yashivlo Brosho. This is really a biblical verse, right? From Vayikra. It's a combination, actually. Vayikra Kavdalid, 24, and also Ovadia. Um, Ovadia is only one chapter long, but it's verse 15. It says, as he has done, so shall be done to him. His dealings will come on his own head. Anan Kimlan Bianuka, the Makarvadate Legabe Zuze, Mikominan Le Apotropos. So what happens? He says, listen, this was not an appropriate way for the owner, for the owner of the half that wasn't freed, um, to go around this ruling, right, that he knows he's going to have to give up the half a slave. So he's like being sneaky and tricky to get around it. So the answer is, and this is also kind of like a, a strange presumption. He says, we know that children or a child is going to be attracted to money and will appoint an apotropos, a guardian or a steward for the child who will figure out, you know, what is this guy's, the slave's market value? And now I'm on the top of my bet. And then the slave should, should jingle the money um, in front of the child. And then the child would want that money and would decide to free him. And then they'll write a, the get shihur in the child's name, meaning the child himself will decide that it's time to give up 
the ownership of the slave. And that's the end of that keta, of that section. But I find it to be such a remarkably strange section because, I mean, all of it, all of it, basically all of it. The idea that somebody is, again, going to want to hold on to a slave to such an extent that he's going to circumvent the Beitin's ruling that he knows will come. You know, he preempts it. And then the solution is to trick the child who was already part of this, you know, from from the father. Now, it, the solution also presumes that the child is quite young and not just simply a minor, right? Like, I might think that the kid is 11, which makes him a minor, but not necessarily subject to, like, the jangling of coins in front of his face um, to be willing to free a slave. The whole thing of it, I don't know, you're Dana, do you have insight beyond puzzlement? No, it, it, it it's puzzling. I mean, again, I don't understand anything about the slavery system. Like all, of it, <laughs> okay. all of it feels very foreign to me. I mean, again, I think the thing that's, I, I think the piece of it that's like so foreign to me is that it's this concept of like, you have these non-Jewish slaves who are brought into a Jewish household and they're like in a way sort of converted so that when they're freed, they can marry a Jew. Like that's what's so shocking to me about the whole thing. What the idea that here's somebody who is I, like going to like join a conversion method? Does that make yeah, sense? Like I in think other so. words, right? But like in a way that like today, like when we're so obsessed with like assimilation and intermarriage, like the concept that this seems to happen fairly regularly, it's so foreign to like what our biggest fear is. Now again, the presumption was that this Canaanite slave adopted Jewish practice in a way became Jewish. Right. I think that they're already living fundamentally right. Jews. Certainly like, you know, mitzvah grandma, I understand. Like it's a tricky thing that they have to answer to the human master before they're going to answer more to the godly master. But but still, right? Like it's certainly much more kiyom ha-mitzvot than, uh, you know, living by the mitzvot than, than anybody would do if they weren't in this status. Right? Like a non-Jew who's just living a non-Jewish life would not do all these mitzvot type of things. Yeah, I, I, I think that is, uh, I think that's okay. correct. But I think today it, we have such a thing with assimilation. I don't know. You hear what I'm saying? I know it's comparing it apples and oranges, but it just seems interesting to me. I just want to go on the next little bit. that We have a mission at the end of this daf, which we're going to do tomorrow because tomorrow's daf also has a Mishnah and we'll divide it up evenly then. But I want to just mention that the last before the mission of the last sugya on this staff is really about the vocabulary, the statement that one makes to free one's slaves. And that statement really has more leeway than you might think, meaning it is formulaic, right? It does have to include, you know, the, the name of the slave and the language of saying that you're going to make him free. But, ploni of the ben I made so-and-so free. Asui ben Chorin, he was made free. or behold, he is free. Harehu ben Chorin, all of these people um, will be, you know, rendered free. They will be treated as free. Um, and then the Gemara is going to, you know, delve into each one of them to see, like, uh, what what are the limits of these statements. But I think it's valuable to note that um, as much as there's so much, you know being a stickler for formulation and ensuring that there be a get shikhur, this document of freedom and so on, there's still a recognition that um, 
the intent to make somebody free can be found in several different versions of formulating that. Yeah, I mean, again, this brought me back to Nadarim again, right? It's the <laughs> idea of like specific language has a specific consequence. Right, exactly. Um, and then, you know, then there's a question, and this I think is very interesting. We're not going to delve into it now, but where the person, one, the owner says, I made so and so, my slave is now free. And the slave says, No, he didn't. We're like, Wait, what? What just happened? Yeah, that, right. That's it. Like, so it's like, No, you didn't actually, sl- you know, you didn't actually free me. Um, but I wonder if that gets into a thing that almost in a way like they had to prove it or, or some, you know, I don't know. I didn't quite understand like what that case would be. The owner says, I freed you. And the slave said, said you didn't. Unless it was that like the documentation required wasn't there. And that's what the slave is concerned about. So that's the Gemara goes on there to say, right? If he, if the owner says, I wrote you a get or I wrote you this document. And, and the slave says, he, you know, he did not write me that document. Well, then that, you know, is a matter of like, well, show the document, go to the court. And the, the Gemara has this great line, the idea that the, if, a, if a litigant makes an admission, it is, the sim, it is similar in terms of credibility to the testimony of a hundred witnesses. Meaning, if you admit in free court that you did thus and such a thing, then that really is considered to count, especially if it's something that, you know, it's not like admitting to a crime, right? Or 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 denying, you know, the the doing of a crime. It's to say that you you know made your free your slave free. So the question then is, you know, well, is he going to be treated as free or not? And the parameters, literally, like how it's formulated, when it's formulated, assuming that there is no argument from the slave himself. You know, this is exactly what happens in the last section of this stuff prior to the Mishnah. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank is review. It's on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.